BMO held another roundtable discussion on the latest market impacts of COVID-19 on Monday, March 30th. This session was moderated by BMO experts, Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Officer, Michael Gregory, Deputy Chief Economist, Greg Anderson, Global Head of FX Strategy, Leslie Marks, Chief Investment Strategist, and returning special guest, Dr. John White, Chief Medical Officer for WebMD. Here is a full playback of the call. Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the BMO Financial Group conference call on COVID-19, what it means this week. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Mr. Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist, BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead, sir. Thanks, Maude, and good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much uh, for joining us on behalf of Viva Financial Group. Again, thank you so much. This is the third consecutive week that I have the pleasure to have Dr. John White and select subject matter experts from BMO to discuss the COVID-19 crisis. On today's call, we do have uh, Dr. John White, the Chief Medical Officer from WebMD, and three subject matter experts from BMO Financial Group. Michael Gregory, the Deputy Chief Economist from BMO Financial Group, joins us first after Dr. John White's comments, followed by Greg Anderson, who is Global Head of FX Strategy, then Leslie Marks, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Private Wealth in Canada. Then I will follow up with specific comments in terms of investment strategy and open up the lines for Q&A. Before we start the call, I would like to remind everyone that uh, we are not doctors here at BMO Financial Group. So if you have any issues in terms of your of your health, please, please reach out to your medical professional immediately uh, or the one that you depend on for medical advice. With respect to other disclosures surrounding uh, BMO Financial Group and the content on this call, please take a look at uh, the flyer that you all received to dial into this. There are important disclosures at BMOCM.com. Now on to Dr. John White, who is the Chief Medical Officer at WebMD. In this role, Dr. White leads efforts to develop and expand strategic partnerships that create meaningful change around important and timely public health issues. Prior to WebMD, Dr. White served as the Director of Professional Affairs and Stakeholder Engagement for the Center of Drug Evaluation and Research at the U.S. FDA. Also, keep in mind that Dr. White is an active doctor and continues to see patients and clients on an ongoing basis. So he is one of those frontline heroes that we all need to applaud and respect. And with that, Dr. White, please lead us off. Well, Brian, thank you for that very kind introduction. And what I'm going to talk about, what's the latest that we know about coronavirus? What do we still need to know? And what should we be thinking about over the next few weeks? You know, I wanted to start, as I always do, just kind of where we are on the data and the numbers. And I wanted actually this time to talk a little bit about Canada versus the United States. And, and I have to say that Canada actually has a great government health website, uh, along with the symptom checker and update, as well as um, where you are on cases. So within Canada, um, there are, are 
approximately 214,400 um, tests that have been done. 214,000. 6,320 people have tested positive, and there's been 65 deaths. And, and that gives you roughly, and the numbers keep changing, um, a death rate around 1%. But it's actually probably lower given that we don't have a true denominator of cases. But an important point that Canada has on their website is that 98% of the confirmed cases had mild or moderate symptoms. Only 2% would be considered serious or critical. That's a little different than what we saw in some other countries where it was 80% mild. Canada is reporting 98% mild to moderate symptoms. In the United States, and there's a great website called covidtracking.com that really gives you up-to-date information uh, in terms of the number of cases, and this is actually as of just about an hour ago. Uh, over 900,000 tests have been completed. There's been 143,000 cases that have tested positive, but keep in mind over 700,000 people have tested negative, and these are in testing primarily of people that we think may have the disease. There are 2,487 deaths, which roughly makes a 1.7 fatality rate. Um, as you may know this, 50% of all new cases are occurring in New York and other hotspots currently are Chicago, Cook County, New Orleans, possibly from Mardi Gras, Detroit, Florida, and California. 19 states have less than 200 cases, and I'm going to come back to that. But that's where we are in terms of the numbers. But the big issue that we've been talking about on all of these calls is testing. And, and testing is really going to impact all that I'm talking about. And testing in the United States, more so than in Canada, really started slow. And we're just starting to make it. So I, I gave you the numbers. We're almost testing at a million people. But, you know, half of that will have been just in the past couple of days. So we're almost at 20,000 tests per day. It has historically been limited by supplies of pipettes, protective equipment. Um, and I should also point out, even if we have a million tests done as of today, that's still much lower per person than other countries. But it's going to change, and you may have seen this in the news. They were having more access to point-of-care testing. You may know point-of-care testing means I, you know, do the swab and, and I have a piece of equipment, um, might be like a toaster-sized device right around me. So it's that point-of-care point of testing, and that's really creating new testing strategies. So the previous week, I talked about how a company, Cephet, had a device where they could give you a test result within 45 minutes. And they've reported they have had some manufacturing problems in getting it out in the market. As you may have seen, Abbott recently announced their test can be done in quickly as in five minutes. It's, most of the time it's five to 15 minutes. A positive test typically occurs in five minutes. A negative test might take 15 minutes. Um, it's been announced that they'll be shipping 50,000 tests a day starting equal second. And that is really going to ratchet up the number of, of 
cases, um, both positive and negative. There's still a prioritization here in the United States. It's supposed to be inpatient and long-term care facilities. And then elderly with comorbid conditions, healthcare providers, first responders. But I really want to caution everyone. You're going to see these numbers drop, uh, these numbers increase dramatically. But that's to be expected because we're going to be doing even more testing. So we're going to have more cases. And the other relevant point is FDA recently approved a self-swab that you would do in your nose. It's not an at-home test, as they've been talking about in uh, in some other countries and even here. It's going to be in a healthcare facility or a testing center where you'll self-swab the important point about that is that will eliminate the need for the personal protective equipment, and that's an important distinction. You know, I mentioned I've been talking to the Surgeon General quite a bit. The Surgeon General did announce publicly yesterday that the rate of increase of deaths has slowed. So we're still seeing new cases, but the rate of increase has decreased. The rate of new cases has slowed as well, given where we're looking at the current testing strategies before we have this whole new infusion. Uh, I mentioned to you that 19 states have less than 200 cases while they're doing active testing. And Dr. Fauci from NIH did announce yesterday that he thinks the mitigation strategies are working. And I want to talk a little bit about the curves because everyone's always asked, well, where are we on the curve? How many days are we on the curve? And I mentioned this before, but it's an important point to recognize that we're not truly comparing apples to apples, because so much of it is based on how much testing has occurred in the population and when mitigation strategies started. It's very hard to compare across countries. And Dr. Deborah Burks, who's the coordinator for the task force, um, late last week cautioned about those models that are predicting alarming increases in infections and deaths. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have those cases, but the increase, there's some question to that because there's a lot of uncertainty in these models and there's lots of estimate around the ranges. But people, the news media, I'm going to be honest, doesn't always talk about what those estimates are. And much of the behavior that we see can decrease the rate of increase. And she commented on Sunday, there's actually 12 different models that they're looking at uh, and they don't have the data that matches predictions that 60 to 70% of the population will be infected infected in the next 8 to 12 weeks. And the UK revised their estimates of 500,000 deaths to 20,000 deaths. In, in Italy, they talked about a 7.2% mortality rate. And I told you what we currently are in Canada uh, and the US. It's, it's 1 to 1.7%, perhaps much lower because we don't have the true denominator. And just as you think about, you know, where we are compared to Italy, and we're not hearing as many comparisons to Italy on the news, a quarter of the population in Italy is 65 or older. That's much higher than our population. Many deaths were due to comorbid illness rather than the COVID-19 infection, heart disease, respiratory issues. And then just the same mild and the asymptomatic cases were rarely tested and not included in the denominator. So overall, I do have this cautious optimism. Many of you know that the president announced last night um, that the guidelines in terms of social distancing will be extended till April 30th. 
expect there to be a peak of cases in the next two weeks. Much of that is going to also be due to the increased testing as what we what we think has been community spread. And he's hoping by June 1st that we have more of a recovery. I've mentioned a couple times that I've worked at the Food and Drug Administration. I've been talking to Janet Woodcock, the Center for Drugs at FDA. And despite some of the discussions around the vaccine, that's not where the action is. That's an 18-month endeavor under the best of circumstances. And there is more than one trial going on, but virus trial vaccines notoriously have been challenging and have often not worked. The real issue is where we are on treatment. And what I've been talking about with the FDA is getting out there that we still need to have objective review of data. Even in an epidemic, we still need to have trials. All drugs have risks, and we need to recognize that we have to address safety and efficacy. Uh, and you've heard a lot about hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, um, but also remdesivir. But the other big area where we're seeing information, and, and Dr. Woodcock is big about getting the, getting the drugs out, getting them out in a testing environment, is also monoclonal antibodies, and then plasma therapies. And that's what people have been talking about uh, lately, this issue of convalescent plasma. And I'm not going to give an immunology lesson, but, uh, you know, when we get infected, we mount an, uh, an, uh, an antibody response. And then the antibodies will persist in our, our bloodstream for a while. So can we retrieve them and then inject patients who are infected with antibodies from a recovered patient uh, because these antibodies would provide pr protection. And there actually are some trials currently undergoing right now. Mount Sinai is the place with the, the greatest number of patients undergoing it. And, and the reason why I come back to that is this is where you're going to see the discussion moving from is we can also change our testing paradigm. So right now we've been talking about you know, how do we move to point-of-care testing so we can, you know, test a large number. But what we're actually going to start thinking about is antibody testing as opposed to diagnostic testing because the antibody test can tell us whether you've had coronavirus and you've recovered, whereas the current tests confirm whether or not you have active infection. And what we're going to want to know as we think about an off-ramp is whether people are recovering or have recovered. And the good news for that is that's a blood test versus a nasal or a throat swab. And if we can identify who's in, who was infected and recovered, including a wide-scale sampling of the population, we're going to hear much more about testing of a broader population soon that may have never been diagnosed either because you didn't feel sick, because you're asymptomatic, and we need to understand that population or you couldn't get an initial test because we know there's challenges, that's going to change over the next couple of weeks, it allows us to ultimately identify the full scope of the pandemic and not just individual infections. And Britain is moving in this way. They ordered 3.5 million fingerprint serologic tests to start looking at that. And the reason why I focus on this is because we need to think of an off-ramp and an exit strategy as well as a next-time strategy, because there's discussion about whether this will reoccur in the fall. So really, what's the future over the next couple of weeks? Well, we know we have 30 more days of social distancing. We're having more 
stay-at-home orders. I'm next door to Maryland. They just issued uh, a stay-at-home order. We're going to see much more broader testing. Despite the limitations that we've had in supplies, I think the point of care testing, as well as the self-swab, is going to have a big impact on our ability to test a much larger population. A million tests sound really high, but that's only because, you know, early on we were doing a couple hundred. Um, so we need to do much more testing. But you're going to start to hear us talking about testing for immunity. Um, and then that gives us the ability to do smarter, targeted approaches because we have to recognize we can't stop the economy forever. And how do we do a more surgical strike like Singapore and South Korea did? They didn't close their schools for the most part. They didn't have panic. How are we going to use innovation and technology? Um, we all know there's tracking technology and, and uh, location uh, locators. There's discussion about that those persons that have become infected could upload their location services to a site. Other users who had been in close contact with that person would get a notification, and they could self-isolate themselves for two weeks. Or they could get a test, an antibody test. Maybe they've already recovered. And that way we can sever the transmission chain because that's what we're trying to do. And in many ways, how is innovation going to help with contact tracing in the future? Contact tracing is a lot of work. We don't have the infrastructure of, of public health to do that on a large scale. So how do we use technology to do that and identify ahead of time a region of the outbreak of the virus? I talked on our last call that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about a, a mitigation strategy based on risk and opening certain areas of the country. That's not where we are of today, but would we be there by April 30th, all things being equal? I always like to add, end with, you know, where's my, where's my optimism? You know, where, what am I optimistic about? What am I concerned about? Because, you know, if, if you watch the news all day, it's all doom and gloom. And it really is an infodemic as well as a pandemic of just too much information. So a couple things that I'm optimistic about. There's been more and more discussion about the summer may decrease virus. It's interesting. There's a lot of discussion about what's happening in sub-Saharan Africa and whether it's malaria protection or it's heat. We're going to find out very soon. But I do think there's enough data to suggest that the summer may decrease the rate of the coronavirus as it does for every other respiratory virus. It may return, but the summer may improve upon that. We also have data that shows that the virus has not mutated, has not changed that's good news because that was a concern whether our treatment strategies. I'm optimistic. All things being equal in testing right now, we're seeing a decrease in the rate of increase of death, and, and that's important. And then I think technologies in terms of wearables that can look at temperature, some of them can look at oxygenation, location trackers are all going to have a role. If they don't in this exit strategy, I think they could in our next time strategy. Um, so that's what I'm optimistic about. I'm concerned there's still a lot of misinformation out there. Anyone that has a social media page can just tweet something and, and people believe it. We've seen a need to crack down on companies that are making claims about effective therapies when we know there's no data to support it. So, you know, I'm very focused on 
making sure at least at WebMD where 80 million people come to the site every month that we're providing credible information that's evidence-based. And I'm working with partners to make sure that I can amplify their messages when it's um, credible and evidence-based. So there's still a lot we need to do. There's still a lot of concern about the number of infections as well as the number of deaths, especially in certain locations of the city, uh, of the country. But, you know, we are doing the right public health strategies. We, we are doing the right preparation. Uh, we are making the right tools and resources available. It may not be as, as quickly as, as sometimes people like, but we're getting there. And, and I think there is a lot of data that shows some of the modeling that was suggested in the past that has caused a lot of panic is, is just not accurate. So that, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Brian, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much, Dr. White, and we're looking forward to the Q&A section, which I'm sure that we will have some questions specifically for you. But now let's transition to our BMO subject matter experts, and leading us off will be our Deputy Chief Economist of BMO Financial Group, Michael Gregory. Go ahead, Michael. Well, thanks, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone. Well, on Friday, President Trump signed the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, also known by the acronym the CARES Act, providing $2.2 trillion of support for the U.S. economy that continues to be pummeled by the COVID-19 pandemic. However, the surprise of the day uh, went to Canadian policymakers as they delivered another round of support measures to not only counter the negative impact of the uh, coronavirus, but also the collapse in oil prices. Uh, the Bank of Canada reduced its key policy rate another 50 basis points to 0.25%, now having reduced it a total of 150 basis points this month to the effective lower bound, just like the Fed. And having avoided it during the global financial crisis, the bank announced a quantitative easing program. It's going to purchase $5 billion of Canada bonds per week until, in its words, the economic recovery is well underway. The bank also announced a program to support liquidity in the commercial paper market to supplement the liquidity support programs that are already announced for BAs, MBS, and provincial bills. Meantime, the Canadian government announced it would increase its subsidy for payroll costs to 75% from 10%, along with some new business lending programs, some of which are partly forgivable. Now, it's being reported that Ottawa's combined direct spending, tax deferrals, and loan support programs now total above uh, $200 billion, or 8.6% of GDP. In the U.S., the $2.2 trillion CARES Act weighs in at a hefty 10.3% of GDP, made up of $1.1 trillion of spending increases, uh, $290 billion of tax decreases, and $870 billion of funding to support loans to businesses, both big and small. The latter funding includes $454 billion that's going to be handed over to the Fed with congressional oversight to support up to $4.5 trillion in new financing. And this is on top of the $40 billion Treasury has already given the Fed to support up to $400 billion of Fed purchases of commercial paper, asset-backed securities, along with uh, corporate bonds and loans. And of course, a week ago today, the Fed announced open-ended QE, which also included commercial mortgages along with treasuries and MBS. On both sides of the border, these rapid and massive monetary and fiscal policy measures won't prevent horrendous GDP outcomes for March and April. 
Last week, we downgraded our real GDP forecast, calling for the Canadian economy to contract at a 6.5% annualized rate in Q1, worse than the 5% U.S. downturn owing to the rail disruptions in the harder oil hit. And we look for both economies to contract at a 25% annualized rate in Q2. Now, the economic indicators are beginning to reveal just how bad this short-lived recession will get. Last week, it was reported that a massive 3.3 million Americans apply for unemployment insurance, and the consensus call is that this will be repeated again this week in Canada. The monthly cumulative tally was 929,000, or just under a million, through March 16th. We look for the Canadian jobless rate to hit 10% in the next couple months. It's currently 5.6%. And for the U.S. unemployment rate to top 8.5%, and it's currently 3.5%. So while these rapid and massive policy responses won't prevent a technical recession, they do lay the groundwork for a very strong recovery once the COVID-19 crisis ebbs, particularly during June and July, under the assumption that social distancing starts getting relaxed as May unfolds. We reckon we'll see 30% annualized growth in Q3 alone on both sides of the border. However, the second half recovery uh, won't stop the full year from averaging negative growth of around uh, minus 3% in Canada and minus 2.5% in the U.S., which, interestingly enough, is about what we saw in 2009. And with that, I'll turn things over to my colleague, uh, Greg Anderson. Hi, greetings, everyone. Uh, so I just point out what uh, Michael uh, highlighted for the U.S. and for Canada, both in terms of economic shocks as well as uh, policy response shocks. Um, fairly typical of what has happened uh, all over the globe. Uh, so many countries have uh, cut interest rates to their effective lower bound, and, and many countries are, you know, looking at, at very deep uh, recession figures, at least for uh, the first half of the year. Um, and with that, uh, as you would expect, we've seen more volatility in the foreign exchange market than we've seen in the past five years. Uh, however, um, in comparison to uh, other markets, and, and I'll be specific, you know, to uh, equities as well as uh, as oil, I, I would say that we've had more orderly markets in FX. So, uh, there have not been any, uh, what I would call flash crashes, uh, uh, moves bigger than, you know, 5% in a day. Uh, although there have been many moves, uh, in many different currencies that are in sort of the 1 to 5%, uh, category. Um, just to point out, uh, year to date, uh, where we are in, in a number of the, of the big currencies first. Um, and, and I would say any move bigger than 10% in a quarter in a currency, you know, it's a, it's a really big move. Uh, so this is year-to-date through last Friday's close. Uh, Euro down 1% against the U.S. dollar, uh, and all these figures are against U.S. dollar. So not a big move at all. Uh, yen up a percent against the U.S. dollar, um, nothing. Um, Canadian dollar uh, down 8%. Uh, it is a significant move, um, maybe not as big as uh, one might think. Um, Australian dollar down 13%, uh, Norwegian uh, krona down 18%. Um, and now when we get to emerging market currencies, uh, you, know, you have sort of the, the biggest uh, volatility. Uh, Mex peso down 21%, South African rand 23%, uh, Russian ruble 24%, Brazilian real 25%. 
Um, and I would point out that the bulk of these moves, uh, in both EM and, and, uh, and then in the developed market commodity currencies, the bulk of these moves has happened since, uh, March 6th. Uh, and March 6th was the date that, uh, OPEC plus, um, so OPEC plus Russia, uh, sort of broke up. Uh, and before that breakup, WTI was trading at $45 a barrel. Uh, today we're trading at, uh, let's just call it, uh, $20 a barrel. Um, when we talk about things that move exchange rates, this is as important, and I'd argue even more important, uh, than, uh, central bank rate cuts and QE and, and so forth. Um, what happens when the price of oil, and it's basically a third of what it was at the start of the year, uh, moves to that extent? Well, oil exporters are, are starved for U.S. dollars. Um, central banks uh, in countries that are, are importers of oil say, hey, uh, we now have no inflation. Therefore, we can, uh, we can cut our interest rates down to zero. We'll let our currency uh, devalue. Uh, and, and it's not going to cause, uh, what is normally a headache for us, uh, inflation. Um, so as we look forward to, uh, what's likely to happen over the next, uh, few days or weeks, uh, I'm going to make, uh, several bold calls here. Uh, so first off, uh, the disease vector, uh, won't drive foreign exchange, um, except for maybe in a few countries that haven't declared a, a lockdown yet, uh, nearly as much as the oil vector. Um, this, this is the driver. Um, my second prediction is that th- that is likely to get worse, meaning prices lower, um, before it gets better. Um, and, uh, and, and I say it's worse because prices go lower, uh, because this spills over to so many different things, uh, and just causes chaos. Even, even if you're a buyer of oil, you don't want that much chaos. Um, so I said likely to get worse before it gets better, uh, but I do think that if we were looking on, on a three-month and beyond horizon, um, things will get better. Uh, and, and as a result, uh, currencies that have been uh, punished extremely uh, should rebound somewhat. Um, speaking first of the Canadian dollar, uh, so I, I would state that with oil prices where they are today, I, I don't think it's weak enough. Um, I think that we should be trading at something like, and it's based on my models, um, 143 in dollar Canada, or if you look at it in reverse notation, uh, 70 cents. Um, if we were to get a recovery of, of oil back to in the 40s, uh, which I think is realistic on, on a six month horizon, say, um, then I think Dollar Canada should be about 136 or, or 74 cents in the flip notation. And, uh, that would be the outlook I, w- I would share with you today. For other currencies, I just, just highlight, um, Europe, both from the disease front as well as from the ability to respond, uh, front, uh, is a mess, should remain a mess. And I think that the euro needs a bigger risk discount than is priced into it currently. Um, Japan benefits from from low energy prices, as does China. Uh, these currencies have outperformed, and I would look for them to continue to outperform over the next few weeks at least. Thank you, Greg. I think we're going to move on to Leslie Mark now, who's going to speak uh, with respect to BMO Wealth Management in Canada. Go ahead, Leslie. Okay. Thank you, Brian, and uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. 
Um, <clears throat> there are really four key levers for market performance that I'm going to speak to today. Uh, the first being, I think, what we've already heard uh, quite a bit about uh, from Michael, which is the fiscal and monetary side, and that would be the first and the second. The third being the progression of the COVID-19 virus. And then the fourth, which is, I would say, a less spoken about uh, factor impacting markets, which has been the fund flows or extreme fund flows. So, first of all, we've had a very good look at what policymakers are prepared to do to support our economy through easy monetary policy and quantitative easing measures, as well as fiscal policy support. Here in Canada, our finance minister, Bill Morneau, stated there's not a cap on what the government will spend to bolster the Canadian economy. We've also seen the support for market functioning through asset purchases. Governments will continue to announce policies to bridge the gap created by income dislocation as well. It is also broadly understood that the second quarter will show horrific economic data. We've already seen a glimpse of this with early PMI data in the U.S. and Europe, and jobless claims both here and south of the border. On the subject of fund flows, we've experienced many record days of fund flows, showing signs of capitulation out of the higher-yielding bond areas of the market, such as investment-grade, emerging market debt, and mortgage-backed securities. Many of these flows have gone straight into cash, showing that there is appetite on the sidelines to redeploy into markets. And finally, on the virus, the key to market performance will be watching the progression of the virus throughout the world with particular emphasis on the United States as the current epicenter for the virus. Also, looking at evidence of a peak in cases in hard-hit regions in Europe, notably Italy and Spain, a continuation of minimal cases in China as the Chinese economy attempts to resume normal activity, and finally, the shape and magnitude of the economic recovery in China as the Chinese economy restarts. As investors continue to be faced with a period of maximum uncertainty, our base case continues to reflect that COVID-19 will have a devastating negative impact to global economic growth for the second quarter, with an increasing likelihood that this slowdown will extend into the third quarter. Current estimates for earnings for companies will be impossible to achieve, but also near impossible to forecast without knowing how long it will take for the virus cases to peak globally and for us to move back to some normalcy with easing of social distancing requirements. We believe that policy support, both monetary and fiscal, will definitely help to mitigate the impact of the coronavirus on economic growth. But it's worth remembering that monetary and fiscal policy will have long and variable lead, time, lead times. We continue to believe that the, when the number of cases peaks, the market will move from its current sell-off phase to a bottoming phase and begin to focus on longer-term fundamentals. These factors together will ultimately support equities over bonds. But until we have greater visibility, for the perspective of our clients, our high net worth and ultra high net worth clients, we suggest that a neutral stance to asset allocation is warranted. Thinking about asset allocation decisions for clients, there's really two primary decisions. 
The first is the high-level allocation between capital preservation asset classes like bonds and capital appreciation asset classes like equities. Then we look within those asset classes to the major, beyond the major categories for favored asset classes, drilling into geographies or styles such as value or growth or small versus large. In normal environments, the historically low yield on bonds that we see today would push asset allocators into equity. But the poor liquidity and credit has pushed investment grade and high yield into extreme spread levels and there has been a strong impact due to fund flows on liquidity, making it near impossible to make major asset allocation shifts out of credit or bonds and into equities. Another factor that's impacted in the high net worth space, also as a result of lower yields, has been the stretch for yield for many investors. Looking towards higher yielding investments like high yield and investment grade credit or levered loan strategies has put investors out the risk curve in ways that they haven't before in fixed income investments. And one more trend that's been important has been the use of alternatives offering less liquid strategies. So investors that have wanted to increase liquidity have been forced to access the most liquid equities in order to generate liquidity. These factors have created less appetite for rebalancing to purchase equities than we would historically see at this stage of a market correction. In our world, our high net worth investors work with advisors and are typically aligned with a wealth plan that helps to keep them long-term focused on their objectives. Our advisors provide support and reassurance to keep clients focused on the long-term. Keeping our clients along with their long-term asset allocation targets rather than attempting market timing strategies is the way that they will generate their long-term objective returns. During times of volatility, our investment teams remain focused on their investment disciplines. So to summarize, while it is likely that this environment will remain volatile for some time, and more downside is certainly possible, the key for our clients to achieve their investment goals is to maintain their well-diversified portfolios across asset classes and geographies that aligns with their time horizon, risk tolerance, and wealth requirements. With that, Brian, I'll turn it back over to you. Thanks a lot, Leslie. Really appreciate the comments. And uh, as always, all of our subject matter experts, including myself, have uh, published a numerous amount of material, especially the last couple of weeks. Uh, so please reach out to your relationship managers, and they will make sure that they get you copies of that. Without an ask mode to open up the phone lines for questions, and she can get that ready in the meantime. Uh, I do want to ask Dr. White a quick question uh, in terms of a lot of things that we're hearing in the press. He did a great job talking about uh, a lot of news, especially in the last couple of trading days with respect to big companies talking about um, a vaccine. And he did a wonderful job talking about treatments and the like. But as we move through this and as we move to, again, another potential flu season, which we all know happens every year, in November, what are the kind of steps that you're going to want to see from the medical level uh, this summer in preparing for this, again, another flu season coming up in November? 
Yeah, I think part of it is going to be relating to, you know, much of the discussion that we're having now about equipment is going to become relevant again in the fall. So we can't be using all of the equipment without replacing it. And right now, we're just talking about getting enough equipment to handle coronavirus. And we're still going to need many of those protective devices for the flu. So I think um, we're going to want to make sure that we continue to have more equipment. As you know, the, the vaccine is already decided for flu last year, for this year, and hopefully it'll be more effective than this year's vaccine was. But I think what we'll know more by October, we'll have a much better sense of where we are on potential treatments for coronavirus. Um, than we do now. I think the other element that we're going to see that's different is, um, you know, a lot of folks um, were not tested. What we should be doing is testing people with coronavirus, also for flu, because they actually could have influenza versus coronavirus, and we haven't done that consistently. So I actually think we'll do much more testing for influenza in the fall and we'll need to have the capability to do that. I think those are going to be some of the key issues as it relates to influenza in the fall. And I actually think we'll be much more aggressive about um, using antivirals for influenza. And, and I, as, as you mentioned, I still see patients. And sometimes, you know, depending upon volume, you know, we either treat presumptively, we don't always wait for a test result, we don't always order a test. But I think we're going to see much more of that in the fall, and I think we're going to see um, much more treatment for flu early on so we can create any confusion from coronavirus. Thank you, Dr. White. And, Mo, do we have any questions in the queue yet? Thank you. We will not take questions from the telephone lines. While we wait for the first question, I guess I'll go first uh, to Michael Gregory. And you made a big change uh, again this week. Uh, can you delineate maybe the major difference in your models and your work with respect to what you're seeing in terms of the changes uh, in Canada the last week or so versus the changes that you needed to make in terms of your U.S. forecast? Well, I, I guess the key thing is uh, the collapse in oil prices is uh, weighs a much more heavily on the uh, Canadian economy. And uh, as we've seen that continue to descend, uh, at some points, WTI has been below $20 uh, today, and the equivalent for uh, uh, Canadian domestic prices, even lower, uh, has been a uh, – we've taken more note of that in, in, our, in our projections. Uh, and also, uh, you know, we had assumed all along that the Bank of Canada would be cutting rates yet again, uh, and, and, and that, that has been realized, uh, uh this month, uh, as we expected. But, uh, I do think it's, it's the, uh, uh, the, the sort of aggressiveness on the other measures, such as, uh, on QE, which, quite frankly, the Bank of Canada has shown some reluctance to engage in the past. Uh, uh, we thought potentially that was, you know, still on the table, but, you know, we were a little bit concerned that we wouldn't see it, and, 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 and now we have. So I do think, if anything, the response we're seeing from Canada, including sort of upping the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, subsidy on wages to something more akin what we're seeing internationally from, from the initial 10%, uh, is, is makes one more confident 
in in that sort of uh, scenario of a very robust rebound once we get over the the COVID hump. So if anything, it uh, uh, while it's looking a little more dire in the very near term, again because of oil prices, at the same time the policy response makes it a little more encouraged about the potential rebound uh, uh, later this year. Thank you, Michael. And Mo, do we have uh, any questions in the queue at this time? Yes, we do. Our first question is from Stan from BCIM. Please go ahead. Uh, hi. Uh, just a quick question for Dr. White. Uh, so President Trump last night said uh, anywhere between 100,000 to 200,000 deaths in the States would represent a victory over the virus. So just want to quickly ask uh, you on your opinion on that. Yeah, and, you know, he made some clarifications of that uh, later in the day. And, and what he's talked about is he wishes people would not focus as much you know, on the numbers because there are a lot of instability to the models. And, you know, he's talked about let's focus on what are our mitigation strategies. So, you know, in terms of it's, it's very hard to predict or there are going to be 100,000 deaths, you know, 200,000 deaths. The peak is going to be in two weeks. Think about where we are, you know, today, you know, 2,300. So, um you know, he's, he's backpedaled from that a little. No one's predicting the, the million or two that was in some original models. I think we're going to continue to see morbidity and mortality, but there is some promising news that we're seeing a decrease in the rate of increase. And if that continues, I don't, I'm just going to be honest, is my opinion, I don't see how we get to a hundred thousand, um, in eight weeks, given where we are today given that we're implementing much more aggressive mitigation strategies with more and more states going into lockdown here in the United States. But but he gave that as, as his range. That is a possibility. Could be less, could be more. But let's focus on what we can do. Okay, thanks. Okay, I really appreciate uh, all of you joining us today. Dr. White, thank you for our third consecutive week sure. doing this call. I know it means a lot. Uh, to not only us internally at BMO Financial Group, but all of our clients. And I'd like to thank everyone with respect to our subject matter experts. Again, please uh, go back to the BMOCM.com uh, website to see all of the content that we are constantly adding to uh, within uh, our space here at BMO Financial Group to help you uh, to get through this all together. We hope to be back again uh, next week. Uh, as another quick reminder, we are publishing a podcast with Dr. White's comments and then a quick uh, overview of those comments uh, shortly following today's call. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to hearing from you very soon. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice 
or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public disclosure slash.